Let's say Highway 190, going towards Opelousas. And uh, is everybody familiar with what is called the Old Mississippi River Bridge? Okay, everybody is. Thank you for your response. Underneath that bridge is several very large cardboard boxes. They're raggedy. They're weather-worn. There's miscellaneous, very raggedy clothing scattered around those boxes. There's empty cans, green beans, peas, those kind of cans, maybe a pop can, maybe a few alcohol bottles that are empty. And on the inside of those boxes, there's people that live there. And one day this person, a real nice person, a real kind person, a handsome person, about 58 years old, graying hair, Really? You just got thrown under the bridge, buddy. That's right. Dane Dyke said that, so know where he stands. So much for Overcomers Director. But this real nice man comes and walks up to the first big cardboard box and finds on the inside of that box a very weak and frail teenage fella, maybe late teens, let's say even early 20s, and he calls him out of the box and said, oh, what's your story, man? He said, well, you know, I kind of grew up around church. My mom and dad were in church, or at least my mom and our dad, one or the other was in church, and I didn't really buy into it too much. And he said, right now I'm living with a real guilty conscience. He said, I've dabbled around in alcohol. I've really even dabbled around in drugs. And I'm just going to point in a generic direction. But the young man points his finger in a direction. And he says, you see that man way down the street there? Yeah. I stole his daughter's virginity. And I'm just really messed up. I've got a guilty conscience. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know where to go with myself. The real nice man says, okay, I understand that. He said, I'll come back and talk to you in a few minutes. So he goes to the second box, and on the inside, in much the same condition, he finds a young woman, late teens, early 20s, and uh, what's your story? She says, well, much like my neighbor in the other box, I was kind of raised in church. I, I know what it's about. I've had some experiences in church, but... I got caught up in worldly things, and uh, I just didn't really like what the church taught. I didn't like what they said the Bible taught, and I just decided to go my own way. And my big thing was that I wanted to be attractive to the other young men, so, you know, I showed as much skin as I could, and, um, you know, I did stuff to my hair, and I wore stuff on my face and whatever. And, yeah, I really messed up, and I didn't save myself till I got married like I promised that I would do. 
I was even given a little ring to remind me to protect myself and be a good person. But I messed up and I'm just living under this load of condemnation and I'm afraid that I know I'm not right with God and I'm not sure that I can be right with God. And the man said, I hear you. Um, Let me go talk to the people in this third box and I'll come back and we'll finish the conversation. He goes to the third box and inside that is a what used to be what would represent a, a married family, a couple that was married. And they started dabbling around in worldly things and the wife confessed, I got mad at my husband one day and I cheated on him and I didn't mean to and I was, I was emotional and I was mad and I was angry and so he got mad at me and then went and cheated on me and our kids are all caught up in this big mess and all we do is argue and fight and they admitted too that they used to have some church background and they found worldly things more important and it started out small and not a big deal at first but one thing led to another and now here we are they said we're about to divorce we don't know what's going to happen with our kids and um we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go from here. So the kind man gets all three together. I'm not being nearly as detailed and as explicit as I want to be because of young children in here. But the man said, I'll tell you what. I'm very wealthy. I have a lot of possessions. I own a lot of things. And I have a house. As a matter of fact, it, Some people even refer to it as a kingdom, like a domain. And it's mine. I built it. I established it. I created the whole thing myself. And if you'll promise not to do those things that you've done again, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to give you my house. I'm only going to give you a key to it. You can only have a key. But if you want to come out of your cardboard box and get rid of your fear and your condemnation, your insecurity, depression, you're tired of cutting yourself, you're tired of taking pictures of yourself not clothed properly and sending them to the opposite sex and all that, if you're tired of doing all that and the, the guilt and the condemnation comes to that, if you'll give all of that up, I'll give you a key to my house. And all I am going to ask you to do, you can live in my house. But I want you to manage my stuff that I give you properly. And if you'll do that, you'll always have a key to my house. I want to talk to you for the next little while. And I am going to go as far and as long as I can tonight. Because there's a fire shut up in my bones. There's things that I'm seeing. There's trends that I'm seeing in our church and it's got to stop we have to understand what our priorities are so tonight I want to talk to you for a little while about stewardship Jesus is the man that came to you wherever you were the real nice man and he has given you a key to his house And by living in that house, he didn't give you the house. He just gave you a key to it. And I want you to understand the difference. Gave you a key. And you can live there as long as you promise 
to manage his affairs to his expectation. You can stay there as long as you want. I'm talking tonight to our students, our parents, and I'm talking to our grandparents. And uh, there's a part of this Bible study that I'll reach in just a few minutes that um, you may want to think for a minute before you amen. Um, You may want to listen to the whole thing first. We're teaching a series on a foundation of stone, and we've established for the benefit of our students in here tonight that you can remodel your house, but very few people ever remodel their slab. You leave it intact. And there's things that we're built on that we're going to leave intact, okay? So I want to talk to you tonight about stewardship. It's a part of our foundation that we can't tamper with. The word steward, everybody say steward, is from the Greek word which means an employee that manages a household, an agent, or a treasurer. So when the Bible refers to us as stewards, it is talking about the fact that God owns everything. God owns everything. Everybody understand that. You don't own anything. He owns everything. Do you remember the words of Job? Most people believe he lived around the time of Adam. He set a huge precedent for this subject. He said, the Lord giveth and. You know why? Because it's his. And he can do that. And it's happened to people. So God owns everything. Listen very carefully. I want everybody to get your head around this. He gives each of us certain things in life to manage for him. And we manage it for him and we manage it for his glory. How we do at this task determines how pleased he will be with us when we give to him an accounting of our lives one day. How we do at managing his stuff. So to guide our study tonight, there are some scriptural principles about stewardship that I want to share with you. Number one, the most important quality for a steward is faithfulness. Everybody say faithfulness. The most important quality for a steward is faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible said, Moreover, it is required. It's not optional. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God gives us gifts and things to manage. He blesses our life with things to manage for the good of his kingdom. And Peter said in his epistle, as every man hath received the gift You've received it from God. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, meaning that the gifts you've received from God were not earned by you. They were given to you through his just unmerited favor 
because he wanted to. In Psalm 50 and verse 12, this is God speaking through the psalmist. He said, if I were hungry, God is saying, if I was hungry, I'm God and if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'm not going to share that with you as though you could feed me anything. Because, he said, the world is mine and everything in it. So if I am hungry, you have nothing to give me because you don't own or possess anything. That's what the scriptures say. In Daniel chapter 5, listen very carefully, especially our students. But hast lifted up thyself against God of heaven. And God and the God in whose hand you breathe is and your breath is, excuse me, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. So everything we are, do, possess everything. None of that is ours. It's given to us by him. I want everybody to understand that. I am not teaching a generic Bible study here tonight. <clears throat> So, there are five important areas of our lives that we must manage, that we must be a good steward if we're going to please God. As a steward, I have been given these areas to manage. Everybody say manage. That means that God owns everything in each of these areas, but he allows me to make the decisions as to what I get and to what God gets. He lets us make that decision. So the first thing I want to mention tonight, and the first two things tonight out of the five, I'll go through fairly quickly. The third is what I would really like to capitalize on tonight. But notice in the first one in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants. Notice. And delivered unto them his goods, not theirs, his. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability. And straightway he took his journey. So he gave people that worked for him things that he possessed. They were his. And he said, here, I want you to take this. I want you to take this. I want you to take this. And I want you to manage it. The implication being that when I return, I want to find it better and more than when I gave it to you. Does everybody understand that? So the first thing I want to present to you tonight is talent. Everybody say talent. And man, Grace Church is loaded with talent. We have people that can play, people that can sing, play instruments. We have people that can sing, people that can teach, people that can preach. I'm still working on my abilities in that department, but we have others that can do it so well. Talent, lots of talent. Notice several important features of this parable that Jesus told. The master delivered to the servants his goods. So the servants never owned them. They had only been entrusted with them. So I want everyone to understand here tonight, everything you are that makes you wonderful, that's not yours. You've been entrusted with it. It belongs to someone else. Okay. 
Each servant was given a certain amount of talents. The Bible said, and this is very interesting to me, Kara, they were given a certain amount of talents according to his ability. They were not given anything beyond their ability. They were not responsible for anything that they had not been given. So the man would never return and say, why aren't you singing? He said, well, you didn't give me the gift to sing. Okay, well, then don't worry about it then. However, whatever the master in this parable, whoever he was, whatever he gave to them, he expected them to use those talents to further his kingdom and his reputation and what he was about. He didn't give these things to these people for them to keep or to have or to belong to. He gave these people these things. He entrusted it to them. Okay. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, the latter part of the verse says, For unto whomsoever, whoever you are, don't matter, anybody, rich, poor, young, old, it doesn't matter. Your ethnicity, none of that matters. Whoever to whoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Neglect not the gift that is in thee. In 2 Timothy 1.6, he said to stir up the gift of God, which is in thee. God has given us things. So please note that talent or ability has to be developed to reach its full potential. You have to stir it up. You have to work it. You have to nurture it. Listen to pastor tonight. If you pray for a tree, God will give you an acorn. So you plant it, you nurture it, you develop it, you make it grow. So even though our talents have been entrusted to us by God, we still do not own them. God has given you skills and abilities that you use to earn a living, but they're not yours, they're His. The skills you use to earn a living are not yours, they're God's. Are you using them? To bless his kingdom, are you being real selfish with it? And use your talent for your job. You'll use it for sideline business. You'll use it for this and that. But I can't help the church. You have to remember that God gave you that ability. And if you use it for the kingdom first, then God just multiplies it and develops it and so on. Listen very carefully. Every believer, every believer here tonight, has both a primary and a secondary ministry in the church, and here's what I mean by that. My primary ministry is a ministry that I am gifted to do, and I will spend maximum time in that ministry as a result. But my secondary ministry is a ministry that I am not necessarily gifted to do, but I get involved in things simply because I have a servant's heart and I've been asked to do it. The greatest statement, listen to pastor tonight, I'm pouring everything in I have in me 
end of this Bible study. The greatest statement that anybody in this building will ever hear in your life is not your little cute, pimply-faced boyfriend saying, I love you. It's not even when the doctor comes out and says, sir, you have a bouncing baby boy. It's not when your employer finally agrees to let you retire. That's not the greatest word you'll ever hear. Listen, in Matthew chapter 25, this is the greatest word you'll ever hear in your ear. And the Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee over ruler of many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. God, I hope to hear that one day. So you use your talent for the kingdom first. You give it to God first. No matter what, you use it for the kingdom unselfishly. Because it's not yours. It's God's. He's only entrusted you with it. The second thing that I'll mention here tonight quickly is testimony. Everybody say testimony. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8, Be thou not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Nobody wants to be made fun of. Nobody wants to be ridiculed. Nobody wants to be persecuted on any level. Our students in here tonight, they're terrified to go to school and look different than anybody else. Because you don't want anybody to point at you and, uh, 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 and why don't you do this and why don't you do that and why don't you do this? But that's the only way a light shines, man. If you're dark like everyone else and you look like everyone else and you act like everyone else and you do what everyone else does, where's your light shining at, man? The idea is to be different, is to be a light in a dark place. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives unto death. There's something powerful about a personal testimony. It is still the most persuasive form of communication that there is. David said, come and listen, and I will tell you what God has done for me. Psalm 66, 11. The woman at the well, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, John four thirty nine. The man that was born blind in John 9, I don't know whether he's good or bad, but I know this, I was blind, now I can see. Who can argue with these things? You've experienced them. Who can argue with that? Peter and John said, we cannot stop telling about the wonderful things we've seen and heard in Acts four twenty. Paul, on six different occasions, used his personal testimony to share the gospel with unbelieving people. Jesus even said, I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. Your testimony is something that you need to use. God gave it to you. And if anybody's here says, I don't have one, you're delusional, you're weird, I don't know what to say about it. Everybody has a testimony. So the value of your testimony is, number one, it's unique. There's not another one just like it. Number two, it's personal and easy to understand. Number three, you're the authority on it, so it's difficult to argue with it. Number four, people love a personal story and they remember it. 
That's our culture today. Number five, people relate, can relate to it, so it builds a relational bridge. Number six, in a skeptical world, it's the most effective witness. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The message Bible said, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. You're the only one that can tell what he did for you. I can't, but you can. Your testimony is something that God has given you. So whether my testimony is about being delivered or kept, there's people here tonight talking about being delivered from drugs and alcohol and premarital stuff and blah, 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 blah. There's other little choir boys like me that can testify about being kept. I didn't have to go through all of that. God gave me my testimony, and I am entrusted with the responsibility of sharing it with others. You guard your testimony and you share it with people as a good steward. Because God's entrusted you with it. The third thing I want to mention to you tonight, and this is where I'd like for you to sit up straight and listen with both ears. The third thing that God has given to you, the Bible calls it a temple. We know it as our body. There's people here tonight that thinks they have a nice one. There's other people here tonight that's not real sure. They think they do. And then there's other people here like me that just says, forget about it, man. I'm old and fat and ugly and whatever. I accept it. This is my state and therewith content. <clears throat> Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Know you not that you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, if any man defile it, him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now don't argue with me about this. That's the book. And I'm going to tell you folks tonight, uh, you know, there's all kind of various opinions and ideas running around our planet today. And, you know, there's people that don't believe any of the word of God. And there's other people that don't believe a part of it. And there's people here tonight that don't believe all this. You don't. You manifest it every day by the way you live. You don't believe this. If you did, you'd live it. Hello? But y'all remember that Bible study? Some of you will remember it. I wanted to go buy an inexpensive Bible and just say, look, all these scriptures and, and all this bunch right in here, when you mention the word holiness, they go into cardiac arrest. They throw up, a, they build a wall around them as like Jericho. And they don't want to hear it. But let me tell you tonight, whether you like it or not, does not matter. It's in here. You're going to be judged by it, by what you've been taught, by what you've heard. But there's people here tonight, and I want to do this that night in that Bible study, is let's cut out all those scriptures. Let's get rid of them. Let's get a pair of scissors. Be ye holy, because I am holy, God said. Yeah, right. Who can do that? So let's cut that out. <laughs> let's cut out 
having to receive the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of Pentecostals that I know today that they used to be anyway. I don't know what they are now. But they used to wail away on the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and they don't anymore because they want a big church. And then there's some that's even moving to, um, we'll baptize people. It don't matter if it's Jesus' name. We'll baptize them any way they want to be or baptize them in all of the above. It doesn't matter. So let's cut out all those scriptures. I proved that point that night, and my point was this. Let's cut all this stuff out of the Bible. Now who wants it? You want it? All chopped up like that? You want it? How about you, Lauren? You want it? Bible's all chopped up like that here. Use this one for your Bible study. There's about two-thirds of it gone, but we won't do that literally, but we do it in our lifestyle. We do it in our attitude. We do it in our perspective of God. And you can explain it away all you want. And where people ask me to prove to me, Pastor, that I have to do da-da-da-da-da, you know what my response to that is? You prove to me that you don't have to. And then you get real shaky knees. (laughs) I don't want to go there. Because number one, you don't really understand what the Bible says about lifestyle is the way we teach it. And number two, you really don't know how to argue with it. All you can do is give your opinion. And it scares the living daylights out of me when people come to me with their opinion. So let's talk about your temple tonight. The Bible, now I'm talking about stewardship. This is not a lesson on holiness. I'm talking about stewardship. God has entrusted you with a human body. You know how I know he's entrusted you with a human body? Because when you die, you don't take it with you. It stays right here on this planet. And I'm going to be very respectful here tonight of funerals. But you know, you walk up to the casket. <laughs> she looks so good. What does that mean? She didn't look good when she was alive? Or can you make a dead person look good? I don't know, really understand that. Anyway, I'm just having a little fun with that. Anyway. But everybody talks like it's the person is, is still here. And they're not. Their soul is somewhere else. My mother made an awesome statement one time. We, my aunt passed away. And uh, she and I got to the funeral home at the same time, and we were the only ones there. And we were looking at my aunt in the casket, and my mother said, there's not a soul here. I said, no joke? Anyway, <clears throat> so your body, all the time you spent tonight prepping and primping in front of the mirror and picking out the right clothes and da-da-da-da-da, There's going to come a time when you, you depart from that body. It's going to stay here, and you are going to go somewhere else. Y'all understand that? Do we need to do class 101 in death? So, I'm sorry. I, I, I feel like Debbie Downer, a little black rain cloud, whatever you want to call me here tonight, but we're going to face some realities here tonight.
God has entrusted you with a body. It's not yours. As a matter of fact, God has entrusted you with your soul. God said in Malachi, all souls are mine, saith the Lord. In another place it said, all souls return to me. So your body stays here and your soul returns to God from whence it came. That's what happens. So all of this to do, we make over our body. I promise you, I promise you, there ain't going to be one person in this building, in this crowd, 100 years from now. And the clock's ticking. The Bible places strong emphasis on the stewardship of our physical bodies by teaching us that we are not to defile them. This is not only teaching us not to commit sin with the body, but to take care of the body and to conduct our physical selves in a godly way. You're to take care of your body. The Bible teaches that. Keep it healthy, keep it strong. We're all supposed to eat right, drink the right things, not eat the wrong things, not drink the wrong things. We're all supposed to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, What know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. Your body and soul belongs to God. Your spirit about that will determine where they end up. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit or attitude, which are God's. They belong to him. So as a part of good stewardship of the body, we should be temperate in our eating habits, And avoid entirely, listen to pastor tonight, there's an implicit principle here. We are to avoid entirely any substances that are addictive, which is drugs, things that break down moral restraints, such as alcohol, or bring harm to the body, which is tobacco. The Bible teaches these things. They're they're implicit principles In the word of God, the Bible teaches us not to allow ourselves to come under the influence of any power other than God. And a good steward understands this. And people who are not good stewards with what God has entrusted to them doesn't understand. Notice 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17 according to the message. Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that is exactly what we are. Each of us a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. I live in them, move in them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself, God said. So since God gave us our body... He has a right as our creator to expect us to conduct ourselves in a godly fashion. God is not in favor of any Christian. God is not in favor of any Christian displaying their body in an immodest manner. That is using the body in a sinful way which is not faithful 
stewardship. And I want to spend the next few moments that I have with you tonight, I want to talk to you about modesty. As a steward of the body that God gave you. God said, I'll take you out of your cardboard box of fear, of depression, cutting yourself, doing inappropriate things, living under a cloud of, of, of condemnation and fear. I'm going to give you the key to my house. You can move in and you can be happy. You can move around. You can have liberty and freedom. But there's some things I'm going to ask you to leave in your box when you come. Listen to pastor tonight. Modesty must conform to God's opinion, not yours. The standards of God's word are often at odds with what the world considers modest. But we choose to obey God rather than men. It's funky and old-fashioned as that may sound. I would still rather obey God than men. Do I need to explain why to anybody or do y'all get that? The Bible establishes several principles in relation to our apparel and adornment. These include sex distinction in clothing, modesty of clothing, moderation in the cost of clothing, and avoidance of jewelry and cosmetics that serve only as ornamentation for the body. The Bible teaches this. Whether we like it or not, and you can say, Pastor, you're outdated. It doesn't matter to me what other churches are doing, other pastors teach. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not intimidated by that. That don't, it, it bothers me. I'm, I'm burdened about it. What I'm obligated to tonight is this. That's, this is what I have to do tonight. Specifically, God's word teaches that garments for either sex, this is Bible, and I can prove it to you if you need me to. The Bible teaches that garments for either sex must not expose the torso or leg above the knee. Did y'all know that? The Bible teaches that. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Nor should they draw attention to the form of the body. The body also specifically teaches that only men may wear garments that gird up the loins. Men wear garments that gird up the loins, i.e., that's talking literally about pants or breeches, as the Bible calls it, which show a separation between the thighs. Men do that. And to do otherwise is an abomination to God. For a woman to wear thing, to wear this type of clothing. Applying these principles to modern culture... We must avoid dresses on men, et cetera, et cetera. Clothing that immodestly exposes the body and very expensive or extravagant attire. We must also avoid non-functional jewelry and colored cosmetics, makeup, that serve only to draw attention to the features of the body. The Bible teaches against this. And I'll tell you why in just a few moments. Since modern fashion has strayed so far from biblical principle... We can no longer rely on society's definition of modesty to govern our appearance. It still has to come from the Bible. So I want to go through tonight six 
marks of biblical modesty. I'm going to share with you an article that's written by Luke Gilkerson. Gilkerson. Luke is the educational resource manager for a web-based company called Covenant Eyes. What Luke does is help design and write software that parents can use to safeguard the Internet and to save their kids from being exposed to things. This isn't a UPC guy. This ain't an apostolic guy. He wasn't born and raised rolling around the church with women with long hair and long dresses and all that. This, this guy's in a whole other area. This is what he says about modesty. This article's written in August of 2013. Modesty is a controversial topic, he says, especially when you throw God into the mix. For some, they simply cannot fathom amidst all the great injustices in the world that God actually cares if a girl wears skin-tight pants with the word juicy written across the back side of it. But in the end, it is the word of God that should drive our discussions about modesty. What has God revealed about it? First and foremost, a biblical definition of modesty must focus on the heart. Please hear me tonight. I want to give you some substance you can sink your teeth in. This isn't a holiness standard that your grandma endorsed in 1928. These are biblical principles. They're, they're very clearly taught throughout the Word of God, both Old and New Testament. First and foremost, a biblical definition of modesty must focus on the heart. Modesty begins in the heart of a person. Modesty is primarily about our motivations. It's what's motivating us to do what we do, to dress the way we dress, to act the way we act. It's what's in our heart that's driving that. In addition, modest dress is also about discernment, having an awareness of others and also our own environment. And I agree totally. Modesty is an issue of the heart, and it's about discernment. You have to have an awareness of others and the environment you're in. You have to understand that, and it starts in the heart, okay? Let's talk about modern modesty controversies. Listen very carefully. It's going to be very dramatic for some of you. In a recent conversation, Luke said, a woman I spoke with seemed deeply offended when I suggested a woman's manner of dress could tempt a man to lust. She wasn't denying the claim that men lust after women, but she was emphatic that women are not to blame for a man's lustful thoughts and actions. She's right. A person is never guilty of another person's sin. This woman's protest is, in part, motivated by a desire to fight various rape myths in our culture. Example, when a girl dresses scantily, goes to a college party, gets drunk, makes out with a dozen guys, and then she's raped. Some, for some, there's a tendency to say, well, she was asking for it. This kind of victim blaming sadly leads some to temper any compassion for such women when they are abused. 
Let's be clear. Victims of rape and abuse are never guilty of their rape and abuse. Y'all understand that? The girl who walks across the campus at 2 a.m. and gets assaulted is not to blame for the crime committed against her. Similarly, victims of another's lust do not hereby mean a woman is guilty of lust. She should never be made to account for another person's sin. So where then does modesty fit into the Christian ethic? Let's turn to the Apostle Paul and see what he has to say about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, I desire, he said, that women should adorn themselves. Everybody say, should adorn. That women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Christian women should concern themselves with modesty because the Bible does. This text is a primary example. For the purposes of this article, the writer said, I'm writing about women because Paul is writing about women. In these verses, and I recognize that men should also embrace modesty, and we'll talk about that in another setting. Listen to Pastor tonight. This is just really awesome material. He says, number one, and what the Bible teaches about modesty, is modesty is not anti-pretty. Modesty is not ugly. It doesn't mean you have to look ugly and feel ugly. Ugly. Modesty is not being anti-attractive. It's not. At the outset, we should take note that Paul is not anti-adornment either. The force of his statement is positive. Women should adorn themselves. I'm not going to go off on a long tangent tonight. I don't have time. I'm running out of time bad. But I remind you of the Walmart Pentecostal who spends no time looking in the mirror. They hop out of bed, put on that ill-fated, wore-out, raggedy blue jean skirt and that hair stringing everywhere and off to Walmart I go. And they wonder why no one wants to come to our church. You ugly. I don't know what else to say. I look at you and go, ah! Oh, sister so-and-so, how are you? So good to see you. Modesty is not anti-pretty. Paul said women should adorn themselves. These are not the words of an anti-fashion prude. The same word adorn. Listen to pastor. It's used to speak of a bride beautifying herself for her husband, according to Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. It's a term that expresses being ornamented, well-kempt, and put in order. That's what it means. You look like you're confident in yourself, and you believe in yourself, and you believe in your God. You believe in your lifestyle, and... 
You walk through Walmart even as a woman with that Clint Eastwood stride, boy. Here lately we've been talking about little Parker Durant. He's got one too. All I can say is he ain't scared. <laughs> I didn't see his daddy sitting back there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I could outrun Brother Aaron for about a half a second. If, if, if they profess godliness, he said. If they profess godliness. So the question for Paul isn't about whether a woman should ornament her body. It's not a question of whether she should or not. It's how. Bring me to point number two. Modesty, it starts in the heart. It starts in your heart. It's not because mom and dad makes you do it. And you ain't going to have your cell phone for a week if you wear that short skirt again. That ain't it. You get it in your heart. You get it in your heart first. Number two is modesty is all about who you worship. It's all about who you worship. Yes, it is. In the context, Paul is talking about how women should prepare themselves for gathering at church. That's the context of the scripture. Women are commanded to adorn themselves in a way that's fitting for worship. If they profess godliness, that is, they desire to show God honor and reverence, how should they dress then? If you're wanting to show God honor, that's what he's talking about. If you want to show God honor and reverence, then how should you dress? Paul puts his finger on the trigger of the problem. In Ephesus, listen carefully. The original destination of this letter, the church of Ephesus, the cultural elite in Ephesus, and I've been there, were known for their gaudy and extravagant wardrobes, their elaborate hairstyles, and their expensive clothing that communicated extraordinary wealth. Paul paints a picture of this for the Ephesians, Ephesian Christians and says, don't mimic that church at Ephesus. When you come to church, come dressed in a way that shows you desire the attention to be on God and not yourself. posture about who you worship a person's manner of dress or even their preoccupation with clothing itself Matthew chapter 6 28 through 30 is often indicative of a heart that loves self more than God number three Luke said the writer of this article modesty is about behavior and attitude not just clothing modesty is about behavior and attitude. It's not just a dress thing. It starts in your heart. You're modest to be in a worshipful posture. Number three, it's about behavior and attitude, not just clothing. When Paul says that women should wear respectable apparel, the term apparel is probably translated too narrowly, he said. It is a term that encompasses not just clothing, but one's whole demeanor, their attitude, their action. So your, your attitude says that I'm a modest person. I'm here for Jesus. I'm living my life unto him. That's what we teach in holiness. We don't compare ourselves among ourselves. It's like when you're married, you give up all kind of stuff and you do all kind of crazy stuff for your spouse and people may think you're crazy, but who cares? I love my spouse and I'm going to call them sweet little munchkins in Walmart if I want to. And I don't care what anybody thinks about it. 
But when it comes to our affection towards God, we want to hide it. We don't want people to know we love God, so we want to look like everybody else that doesn't love God. But Paul is saying here that that's what the core issue is about modesty. It's an issue of the heart, number one. Number two, it's, it's an issue of who you worship, either yourself or God. Number three, it's about your behavior, your conduct, your attitude, not just clothing. So when Paul says that women here, in this case, should wear respectable apparel, the apparel is probably translated too narrowly. It's a term that not just encompasses clothing, but it's one's whole demeanor, their attitude, their action. This is kind of the environment that I remember growing up in, whether it's true or not, it's what I remember. But I grew up in an environment where all women looked like shrubbery around your house. They all looked the same. They wore the same hairdos and big old things that... Everybody's clothes looked alike, but I've heard them at church, and I've heard them on the telephone talking about sorry and rotten and despicable the other lady in the church was, and I'm mad because I wasn't voted in ladies auxiliary president, and I ain't going to speak to the president again because they got it, and I didn't. And yep, 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 yep. You look holy, but you're not. Ultimately, what should adorn a woman is not just clothing, but good works, good attitude, good demeanor. As Christians, we're being remade by God for good works. So Christ died so that we might be zealous for good works. Women should seek to dress their lives in works that do good to others marked with godly love. This means modesty is not simply about what we wear, but how we act, how we communicate, and how we relate to others. I've got to hurry. Number four, modesty, modesty, a true modest spirit shows sensitivity to sin. You are aware of you, your appearance, your attitude, your demeanor, and your environment. So you know when you're not appropriate or not. If you have a true spirit of modesty, you know you're not appropriate in attitude, in demeanor, in perspective. And even the way you dress. Okay. Modesty shows a sensitivity to sin. In this text, Paul says a woman's apparel should be worn with modesty. Other translations opt for the word decency. The King James Version translates it shamefacedness, which gets more to the heart of the word he's using here. It's talking about a demeanor of reverence. Showing respect to oneself. Respecting yourself and a regard for others. It even carries the connotation of being a little bit bashful. Connected to the term shame. The word implies the idea of grief over the sin that is in the world, that a woman would be so sensitive to sin, knowing that sin is offensive to God, that she would never come close to trying to provoke it in others. So I am not going to ever present myself to the same sex or opposite sex in such a way that would cause them and give them cause to sin. It's modesty. Let me hurry. Modesty involves cultural discretion. Paul didn't just paint broad strokes when he was talking about modesty. He gives specifics. 
He said, braided hair and gold and pearls and costly array and attire were out of place for a truly modest woman. Listen to some examples. Some knowledge of Roman culture is helpful here for understanding what Paul is saying. In Paul's day, Greek hairstyles for women were fairly simple. Hair was parted down the middle and pinned in the back. But a cultural change was sweeping that region during this time, and women in the imperial household were wearing their hair with elaborate curls and braids and covered in expensive ornaments. The elite through the empire copied this style. For Paul, the appearance of braids and ornaments was more about what fashion communicated. They carried connotations of imperial luxury and conjured up images of notoriously immoral empresses, ancient equivalent to the cosmopolitan cover girls. The poet Junival, a contemporary of Paul, gives a vivid description of this cultural trend. He said, there's nothing that a woman will not permit herself to do in this time, nothing that she dreams or deems shameful. And when she encircles her neck with green emeralds and fastens huge pearls to her elongated ears, so important is the business of beautification. So numerous are the tears and stories piled up uh, on one another on her head that she pays no attention even to her own husband. Similarly, the philosopher Philo gives a description of a prostitute. In his writing called The Sacrifices of Cain and Abel, a prostitute is often described as having hair dressed in elaborate braids, her eyes with pencil lines, her eyebrows smothered in paint, and her expensive clothes embroidered lavishly with flowers and bracelets and necklaces of gold and jewels hanging all about her. Paul's description of a modest dress conjured a picture of someone preoccupied with appearance, faction, luxury, and sexual prowess. So similarly today, modern modesty standards are not about arbitrary rules, holiness standards. They're not about arbitrary rules of how much skin is shown or how low cut something is, but about the message and values that our clothing communicates. Number six, and I'm bringing this to a conclusion, thank you for your patience. Modesty is about true freedom, not repression. More often than not, modesty standards are seen as repressive, arbitrary rules that restrict a woman's creativity and freedom. But when modesty is motivated from the heart, the exact opposite is true. Paul says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with self-control. This might be better understood as self-mastery. I'm controlling myself. My carnal desires are not running me and controlling me I'm controlling them being of sound mind or sober being in control of one's impulses and appetites in biblical extra biblical literature the word has sexual nuances here being able to totally control your romantic and even erotic desires a true spirit of modesty will do that and modesty is often though not always a kind of slavery immodesty is often, though not always, a kind of slavery. A woman may be enslaved by her desire to attract a man. She might define her worth by her fashion sense, her sex appeal, her image, her bus size, her weight, or the brand name she wears. She's a slave to her own desires. This kind of slavery is widespread because sin impacts us all. And in today's sexually charged, media-saturated culture, many women fall prey 
to this kind of slavery. But as Christians, we are free from the slavery of sin because we're united to Christ. Paul exhorts us to live out this freedom. Let not sin, he said, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions in Romans 6.12. So when it comes to modest dress, we can follow Paul's next statement quite literally. Do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Remember, your body belongs to God. So you don't use it to sin with and to provoke others to sin. That's not why he gave you that cute little body you got. Paul wants Christian women to have self-mastery and their wardrobe choices to be literally free from worldly ways of defining worth, beauty, and even sexiness. Ironically, it's not just those who are scantily dressed that are enslaved. Listen to pastor tonight. It's not just those who are scantily dressed that are enslaved, but even those who pride themselves on their modesty. You're just as enslaved. This old traditional Pentecostal attitude that says I'm holy and I'm better than everybody else. It's just as evil. It's the flip side of it. Folks, I wish we could understand. We live our lives unto him because it's not my life. It's his. It's not my body. It's his. And he tells me what to do with it if I want to live in his house. Now I come to tell you why I'm teaching this. And y'all can be a little rest assured I just turned off my electronic device. So that means the end must be near. Not too long ago, I was in an environment with about five, six, seven of our young ladies. And um, I was sitting in front of you. Would be about this far away. And I had to get up and move. I had to go somewhere else. Because I could not literally transplant my eyeballs to the back of my head. It was very uncomfortable for you, Pastor. You have to understand that a modest spirit is always aware of its environment. Now, when you're at home in the bathroom and you're getting in the bathtub, and I don't have to go any further with that. But for God's sake, man, when you're in the same room with your pastor, can you respect me enough to keep your skirt where it belongs and Next time, wear one long enough that, you know, can you do that? Be aware of your environment. And I go back to my illustration, and I prove tonight that none of you folks are ever responsible for someone else's sin. I don't care how you dress. I don't care what you do. But a true spirit of modesty don't like sin in its own self and certainly not influencing someone else to do likewise. So 
when you're with these guys, I'm sorry, God forgive me. Y'all probably like the way it is. Oh, man. Did you see her legs, man? Mm. Y'all smile and laugh. But I used to be that age one day. And I hadn't forgotten it. This 58-year gray-headed old man used to be 18, 19 years old. And I've been in the environments where young ladies would say, would you please look at my face? Y'all don't want to, that's not what he teaches. And y'all can like this or not like it. It, it. It's immaterial to me at this point. This is what he teaches. And I told Brother Greg Albritton Saturday night in my living room and I'm finished. I'm not after the biggest church in Central. What I'm after is a church that Jesus can rapture. That's what I'm after. And I want all of you to be a part of it. And you're not going to be unless you're real cool with this. The Bible said in the book of Revelation that the books are going to be open. Most people believe that's the 66 books of the Bible. A lot of people believe it's your pocketbook. Even God can't get them open. <laughs> but one day when you stand before God, I want all of you to hear, whether you like it or not, don't matter. You can laugh at me and da-da-da. It's not me, it's him. Jesus said, my word is forever settled in heaven. One day you'll stand before him, and he's going to know why. You took the key to his house. And you did it in repentance, water baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. You took his key to his house. And you mocked him and said, I'm going to live in your house. But I'm still going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to do it however I want to do it. He's got an answer for that. I said a little while ago, the most incredible word you'll ever hear is well done. What do you think the most sad, disappointing words you'll ever hear? Depart from me. I never knew you. I want you to stand with me tonight. I'm not going to ask anybody to come down here and cry and blubber at the altar. You can if you want to, and I don't say that disparaging. I'm really not into what you do down here. What I care about is what are you going to do tomorrow. When you wake up to go to school, when you wake up to go to work, what are you going to do? This is for everybody here tonight. Are you going to go into your environment as a worshiper, as a lover of God, in your demeanor, your appearance is going to reflect that, or is you going to go into your environment as something else? Remember, he gave you the key, but it's not yours. It still is. Father, tonight, I have just been deeply, deeply honored to stand here in as much sincerity and passion as I can muster to teach this incredible, incredible church the word of God. God, you are a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what everyone in this building right now is thinking about this Bible study if they even paid attention to it. 
But there is one thing, God, that I pray that you would impress on them. Is that one of these days we're going to stand before you. And you're going to ask some questions. And we're going to have to tell the truth. And my desire, my dream, my heartbeat for this church, for our students, for our parents, is for every one of us collectively to hear you say, well done, well done. Help us, God, to live our lives as unto you. Pray that you would empower us again with your presence. Anoint us with your spirit. Help us to develop a love for your word and to live our lives pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. God bless you. Shake hands with one another. Thank you for your patience, your time, your attention tonight. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.